0: In September of 1609, roughly 420, what, three years ago, this very month, King Philip III of Spain ordered the expulsion, the final expulsion of the Muslims of Andalus. Today, inshallah, we're gonna go back to that point in time and contextualize where and how are Muslims in Andalus in 1609. We thought, or we were taught, that in 1492. The final Sultan of the Nasirids handed over the keys to Ferdinand and Isabella and the end of Muslim Andalusia took place. How then, in September of 1609, is an edict given that Muslims have to be expelled. And it was one of the most tragic incidents in all of Andalusian history. Over 30,000 Muslims were forcibly, forcibly expelled. And many thousands of children were kept... The point being, these children are innocent. They're not corrupted. We're going to keep them to make them Christians. And the parents were forced to go into exile. And over 30,000 at the very minimum were asked to leave within a few days. How and where is this happening? Very briefly today, inshallah, we're going to go over this final expulsion. Now, technically, the people who were expelled were not called Muslims. They were called Moriscos. Who or what is a morisco? Morisco is a derogatory term that the Spanish used. And it means little Muslims. More is what they call Muslims. Isco, just like a, you know, it's a tasgheer or it's a little. It's like a diminutive, making fun of it. You are not real Muslims. You pretend to be Muslims, but you're not really Muslims. Who were the moriscos? The moriscos was a term that the people of Spain used to describe the descendants of Muslims who were forced to convert to Christianity. Outwardly, they're Christian. They have Christian names. They are living lifestyles of Christianity. But inwardly, ethnically, their language, their culture, everything about them, they are descendants of the Muslims of Spain, the Muslims of Andalusia. They never were given equal status. And so for 200 years, they're living separate but distinct. And the term Morisco is given. And this story of the Moriscos is a very fascinating story. It is one of the saddest tragedies of our Islamic history because it deals with the final remnants of Islam in Andalusia. You see, go back to 1492, when Ferdinand Isabella conquered the Kingdom of Granada, when Sultan Abu Abdullah had to uh, surrender the keys, and of course I went over that story multiple times, and our own guy Christopher Columbus, our own Christopher Columbus, was in the gardens of Granada. He was witnessing Ferdinand and Isabella conquering and handing the keys, the Sultan Abu Abdullah handing the keys to Ferdinand and Isabella. Our Christopher Columbus, the guy who quote-unquote discovered America, is in the gardens of Andalusia. And he's going to then petition and then find his way to America, 1492. That's why 1492, every high school kid in America knows discovery of America, quote-unquote. And every Muslim kid, 1492, the collapse of Granada, the collapse of Andalusia. The two dates are the same because the same person is involved because there is a causal linkage. Now, when Granada is conquered, you have to understand Granada is like 80-90% Muslim. The entire population is Muslim. You cannot overnight expel everybody. You cannot overnight tell everybody to leave. There will be no community left. And so, Sultan Abu Abdullah, the last Sultan of the Nasir dynasty, and the original contract is still present. If you go to the museum uh, in Spain, I've seen it with my own eyes. The original signature, the original, you know, the same document is still there. You can read it. And it's actually, you can read it online even. Sultan Abu Abdullah put an entire paragraph. I will only surrender with these conditions. The main condition, the Muslims of my kingdom will not be touched. I will leave. The royal family will leave. You will get the treasury. You will be the rulers. But the Muslims, their religion will be protected. Their right to practice Islam will not be infringed. Their court systems, the Qudats, the judges are going to be in place. You shall allow them to live as they are religiously. You will be the leaders. You will get the taxes. But you will not infringe on the rights of the Muslims. That was in the treaty. You can read it yourself in simple Arabic. It is still there. And if you read Spanish, the translation is there as well. This took place what year? What year was this? 1492. Okay. Sultan Abu Abdullah leaves and the Muslim armies leave. Now who's in charge? Ferdinand and Isabella. How long do you think it took them to start breaking the treaty? Less than a few years. Less than a decade. Because now, khalas, there is nobody in charge other than them. Within a decade, they made the announcement. Either you convert, or you expel, or you shall be killed. Within a decade, literally, less than ten years... And the entire treaty is made null and void. And the Muslims have to make a tough choice. Now, now begins the history of the decline of Spain. Now, obviously, this is a very complicated history. Why? Multiple reasons. First and foremost, we don't have eyewitness accounts from within the Muslims. Very rare. We have external. We have the Spaniards documenting, number one. Number two, the history of the decline of Spain, the last century and a half, it varies from city to region to state. And so Granada is not the same as Valencia, as we'll talk about. Valencia is not the same as uh, Yachiva, Shatiba, Yatiba. And that's not the same as al Everybody, every region is different. And then number three, you had different rulers and kings. Some were more lax, some were more strict. So I'm going to make a bit of a stereotype and be very simplistic with the caveat that if you really want to study deep, you're gonna have to go regional and era by era, which we don't have time to do. We can make some general trends. Of the general trends is that within a decade of 1492, I think it's 1501, 1501, King Ferdinand and Isabella gave the decree. You cannot practice Islam outwardly. You must convert to Christianity or else be expelled or else you shall be killed. What happened? Multiple reactions. Now here you know me, I don't sugarcoat. I don't romanticize. Not every mu'min, not every Muslim is like Yasir and Sumayyah. Not every Muslim is to that level of Bilal. We have to be fair with our history. In our times when there is no persecution, don't we have riddha? In our times when there is no Throat, uh, you know, a knife put to your throat. Don't we have Muslims not, not practicing Islam? Well, then what do you think is going to happen when the government says we're going to kill you? Multiple reactions. One group said, we cannot live here. They made hijrah. And that group of hijrah persisted for 200 years. Throughout every decade or so, people would leave because they don't want to live in Dar al-Kufr. They don't want to live in this land anymore. And you have that, you know, understanding as well. Another group, they fled the major cities and they went to the villages. They, went, they established their own cities. They established their own little villages in the middle of nowhere. Remember, this is before the era of, you know, the railroad and, and electricity and whatnot. You can run away to the mountains. You can run to the heights of the mountains, form your own small community. And so to this day in Andalusia, there are small little villages that are the descendants of those Muslims within especially an hour and a half of Granada. Most famously is the area called Al-Puharra, from the Arabic Al-Basharat, Al-Basharat. Al-Puharra, Al-Basharat. It's up in the mountains. I've been there every year we go. It is absolutely phenomenal. You go there, you find the original villages built by the Muslims. You find the last fortress of the Muslims. We're gonna come to the story very quickly, that the Muslims fled Granada and they founded their own mini villages. Now the government is far away and the Adhan is called, Salah is prayed, there is a masjid, etc but again, the government will eventually get involved. It's gonna take a while, but they lasted a generation or two. So this is a second group. They fled the major cities, Granada and Valencia, and they went inland, they went to the mountains, they went into the middle of the country. The majority of them decided, we have no option but to just pretend to convert. These are the Moriscos. Outwardly, they converted. But inwardly, they tried to maintain their Islam. And for many decades, actually for more than a century and a half, the bulk of them managed to retain some sense of Islamic identity. Some sense. They were not allowed to establish Jumu'ah. They were not allowed to fast Ramadan. They were not allowed to... But they kept their Islam secret. And they attempted to Portrayed themselves as Christian, but internally they were Muslim and a very famous fatwa was given by the ulama of the Maliki school in North Africa. It is called in English the fatwa, the Oran fatwa, and in Arabic is uh, fatwa to um, Wahran, fatwa to to Wahran, al-Wahrani. And that is because the alim or the sheikh who gave it, uh, his name is Ahmad ibn Abi Jum'a al-Maghrawi al-Wahrani. So this is an alim in North Africa. When this edict was given that you have to convert or you will be killed, this sheik al-Wahrani, he sent them a fatwa. And that fatwa became famous amongst them and they implemented it for a century. What is that fatwa? The fatwa is if you cannot migrate, then do whatever they ask you to do outwardly. And inwardly retain your iman. If they force you to drink alcohol, drink alcohol. If they force you to eat pork, eat pork. If they force you to go to church on Sunday, go to church on Sunday. Allah will forgive you because you are forced. But whenever you can pray, pray in secret. And if you have to make jama'ah, all the salah and pray at night, go ahead. And if you have to pray jum'ah alone, go ahead. And if you can only pray by isharat of the eyelids, go ahead. Just do whatever you can. فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ And the rest is all forgiven. This is the famous Oran Fatwa. And this Oran Fatwa became the lifesaver of this Morisco group. And this Morisco group, they then attempted for the next 150 years to secretly preserve their Islam and Iman. Now, unfortunately, we don't have much details. How are we gonna have details? Who's gonna preserve? But we find documents, in fact, I posted on, uh, when I stopped, of course I'm no longer on social media, but right before I stopped, I think two, three weeks ago, I posted a a photograph of a document that was discovered in an Andalusian house that was being rebuilt. And there were two walls, they didn't realize there's an empty space in between the walls. So for 400 years, 300 years, there's that empty space. When they destroy the wall, they come across a series of books. Those books date back to this time frame. Secret Qur'ans, secret textbooks, dhikr books, secret even hijabs because the edict came out. The uh, government said that you cannot wear the hijab just like France is doing now, exact same thing. No Muslim can wear the hijab. That uh, you cannot read the Qur'an, you cannot congregate for the salah, uh, you cannot uh, uh, um, uh, congregate for Jumu'ah and you will be tested. How will you be tested? In Ramadan, for example, you will be forced to eat in public. In Ramadan, everybody knows it's Ramadan, you're gonna, we're going to be forcing you to eat in public. You will be forced to eat pork, and we're going to see your reaction. Because Muslims, when they eat pork, they will automatically vomit. They're so, it's a disgusting meat. It is actually disgusting meat. And so if you're vomiting when you eat pork, this means you're a secret Muslim. They would actually do this. Rumors would spread, so-and-so is a secret Muslim. So the secret police would come, the inquisition would come. They would raid the house in the middle of the night. They would see are there any Qur'ans hidden or not. If there's a Qur'an, immediately taken to the court, tried treason, either execution or exile. Or if there's a hijab, or if there's dhikr or anything that gives the semblance of Islam. So the Oran fatwa allowed the Muslims to retain their sense of secrecy for over 100 years. Now, what happened? Obviously, it's only a matter of time before even this is going to fall apart. For a while actually, we know for a fact, so we have, what do we have? We have the court records during this time frame. We have some of the court records. You read the accusations, and it is truly like, it's scary. One of the slaves says, I heard my master and mistress, the wife and, and husband, speak in the middle of the night in Arabic. This was the accusation. Another neighbor says, I heard the husband call his wife Fatima even though her name is supposed to be Mary or something, whatever it is, I heard her secretly say Fatima. This means they're Muslim because the Muslims had double names. They had their internal name, the secret name, and then they had the public name, you know, Wan or whatever it might be. So if somebody heard you accidentally speak Arabic, accidentally say the name, then you would be reported to the Inquisition. And depending on the king, depending on the ruler, there were Muslims who were killed by the way. But factually speaking, for for some reason, uh, the Jews were given the brunt of the Inquisition. The Muslims, the majority of them were sent into exile or fined and then forced to convert over and over again. But yes, some Groups Now, we don't know how much maybe 10 to 20,000 were actually killed over 100 years. But the bulk of them were either fined or thrown in jail or forced into exile if they were taken to the the, the courts of the Inquisition. Now, eventually, of course, things are going to come to an end. In 1567, King Philip II, the father of the guy who did the expulsion in 1609, King Philip II, then his son King Philip III. King Philip II made a general band no one is allowed to speak arabic anymore no one is allowed to speak arabic if you're caught speaking arabic you will be thrown in jail or maybe even executed this was the final straw for the moriscos the muslims who were outwardly christian multiple rebellions broke out across andalusia this was the last major revolt And the bastion of the revolt was the land I just mentioned, Al-Puharra, the Basharat, Al-Puharra. And one of the descendants of the original Umayyads, Abu Abdullah Al-Umawi, one of the descendants of the original Khulafa became the leader. And for a number of years, thousands of Muslims would travel to Al-Puharra in order to try to wage a rebellion against Granada, against uh, King Philip II. Unfortunately, as is always the case, he was backstabbed from within and a Muslim you know traitor always the case we have to worry about our own somebody from within came and killed him in his own tent our our guy one of our Muslim guys came in and did what he did and Subhanallah this guy Abu Abdul Al-Umawi he would be writing letters to Sultan Salim of the Ottoman Empire we need your help You need to send us ships. You need to send us armies. We're going to be massacred. At the very least, send us equipment. Send us military. Send us aid. Nothing came. For whatever reason, they had their siyasa. I mean, again, you can understand. I'm not at all condoning. But from their perspective, to send aid is to declare war with the Spanish Empire. And the Spanish Empire is the superpower of the time. So by the way, what we are seeing now is nothing new. It is the reality throughout history. The empires are empires and the rest are not. So Sultan Salim was super powerful in his region but he doesn't want to take on the Spanish Armada. He doesn't want to take on the Spanish fleet. He does not want to do that. So the Ottoman Empire never directly sent troops, even though there was correspondence. It is said that some of the local, you know, other regional uh, empires did send some aid and weapons, but nobody sent troops. In the end of the day, you don't want to take on the Spanish. They were the empire at the time. And so it's only a matter of time. Local bribes, this and that. Somebody comes and kills uh, the leader of the rebellion, and then the army army attacks al-puharra and a massacre takes place i have visited that fortress there's actually a video on my facebook from long ago when i last time i visited i I, the last fortress where the adhan was called where the muslims you know died fighting shaheed it's still to this day you can see it there uh you can you can see it out this is in around 1570 the last stand of the muslims of al-puharra and then they were massacred and the rest were sold into slavery, women and children, tens of thousands of women and children sold into slavery, and uh, they brought in local Spaniards to take over al but the, the, the villages and the houses are exactly the same. So when you go to al you will find the houses of the Muslims, you will find the original springs of the Muslims, the names of the areas are all Arabic names, but the people are no longer uh, those people. Uh, interesting story was that a few decades ago, uh, in one of these houses in Al-Puharra, they discovered again in these walls, in these hidden places, because what the Muslims would do, they would dig a hole somewhere and bury their books. They would have a secret place. When they were expelled, who's going to discover the place? Slowly but surely. Recently, a discovery was made uh, of a beautiful nasheed about our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which is in majority Castilian Spain and phrases of Arabic. Phrases of Arabic and the rest of it is in, you know, medieval Spanish. And this, uh, this uh, naat or this uh, praise was taken by a group of modern nasheed artists and they replicated how it would have sounded. You will find it online. It is called Madha Morisco. Madha Morisco. If you just Google it, you will find it online. And there is just a nasheed in Spanish that the Muslims of Al-Puharra would say to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, phrases of Arabic and the rest is in Spanish. These are the Muslims. This is third generation, Morisco, and they're still saying salam to the Prophet Sallallahu still keeping their tradition alive. In any case, as we said, uh, this is in 1570, and so in Granada and in Al-Puharra, there has been an almost all-out complete expulsion. One major city remained, And that was on the other side of Andalus, and that is Valencia. Valencia, okay? Valencia in Arabic with the Ba, Valencia in modern time. Valencia was under a different dynasty, a different king, and the dynamics was different. 30% or 40% of the locals were still Moriscos, i.e outwardly Christian, but inwardly Muslim. And the Muslims were in charge of the agriculture, of the trades, of the craft, of the business and trade. So the people couldn't live without them. The people needed them. So for 150 years, the Muslims remained in Valencia, the Moriscos, even though technically they're not Muslim. Outwardly, they're Christian. But everybody knows, you turn a blind eye, let them be, we need them, what not. But now in, after this 1570 rebellion, a new bishop comes, a new archbishop comes and this archbishop, he was the most you know, bigoted, hated archbishop of the time and he made it his personal life mission to get rid of the Muslims. He made it his personal life mission, and he began clamoring, fomenting public hatred against the Muslims of uh, Valencia. And his name is uh, Juan de Ribera. Juan de Ribera. Juan de Ribera. He began to write to the king. Now it's King Philip III. To uh, to uh, multiple times, saying that this group. It is a traitor group. They're a treacherous group. You had better get rid of them. And he began, because he's the archbishop, if you do so, God will forgive you. If you do so, this is uh, you know, sanctioned by God. Because lots of other Spaniards were saying, firstly, these are Christians. We shouldn't treat them differently. Secondly, our city depends on them. If we kick them out, we're not gonna have trade. We're not gonna have. But the archbishop didn't care. And eventually he convinced uh, the King to issue the edict to expel all of the Muslims, and so in September 1609, this month, September 1609, the edict was read out. The King was very sly, very very you know um, tricky. He had already defanged the Muslims without telling them he had already cut off all exits. He had already brought in extra troops right before the announcement. The Muslims were caught totally unexpected. in September. 15th I think or 17th this is basically right now this these days. That's why I'm giving this khatir now. In September Surprisingly, I mean it was a surprise the Muslims were told you have one week get out or kill There is no conversion because technically they're already converted now you have no option get out or we'll kill you actually this archbishop wanted them to be killed The king said, I I don't want to kill them, it's going to cause a problem and and maybe they're Christian, what if they're Christian? So the king actually thought this was the humane treatment to not kill them, only to expel them. But he did allow for multiple groups to keep children because they needed people. I mean, you have to realize people is a commodity, humans are a commodity. And so children beneath the age of six, some families were allowed to be, like some rich families were allowed to keep Muslim children some powerful people could forcibly take muslim parents away from their kids and say these children are baptized christians they haven't been corrupted by you guys so we cannot allow them to go to muslim lands and so that was one of the biggest tragedies where eyewitness accounts of mothers wailing and fathers trying and you know thousands of children were kept behind and these adults were sent in where did the adults go the majority of them went to morocco by the way the adults had to pay their own fare as well. Not that they got free, no. You have to pay the double fare, whatever is the price, you have to pay your fare to go to Morocco. And you're not allowed to take anything with you other than your bags, your properties, your wealth. Anything that is stable, you cannot sell it. It's gonna be going to the local population and the government. So the Muslims had to flee to Morocco. Majority of them went to Morocco. Small pockets went to uh, the Ottoman lands as well. And within a few years, the entire Morisco population was gotten rid of. How many? We don't know for sure, but probably in this expulsion, probably 30 to 50,000 people, right? Throughout the last 100 years, around quarter of a million Muslims. But in this last expulsion, 30 to 50,000 Muslims. By the way, really interesting story. Some of them who were expelled, some of them, they managed to come to the Americas, the Moriscos. We have documented reports of some of these Moriscos, Muslims, making their way to the Americas. But it's 1609. So where do you think they're going to land? New York? Who can tell me? Especially the high school kids should know this. Maybe the adults, they're excused. The high school kids, where do you think 1609 they would have landed? Plymouth Rock? 1609, where would they have landed? Huh? Mexico. And where else? Huh? Peru, other South American countries, right? We have documented reports of Muslims making their way in 1600s to South America. But none of them can retain their Islam. Because the the, the environment is anti-Islam, right? So they were actually accused of being secret Muslims. That's why we have their documented reports. And they have to confess. We have a lady, uh, I forgot her name right now. She confessed that she was born and raised a Muslim. But then she said, but I am now a Christian. We ask Allah to forgive her. She has no other option. I mean, what is she going to do? So she confessed she was a Muslim in her youth. But in Mexico City, this is in 1629, in Mexico City. So she's brought in front of the court. What is the charge? You are a Muslim. And she says, I was a Muslim, you're right. But I'm no longer. And we have the records of this. Now I have no doubt in her heart she was a Muslim. No Muslim leaves Islam and starts believing in you know, false gods. But she had to say what she had to say. My point being the expulsion here created a chain reaction across the globe and so many Muslims had to leave. To conclude, What was the goal of King Philip? Why did he do this? King Philip was a king in the end of the day. The religious bigotry doesn't really concern him the main thing. When you look at why the king would have made this edict, and this is one of the reasons why I'm bringing this khaterah here today, we find the sentiment, the mentality is exactly the same as what we have right now. 1600s, Spain, it was a time of great political and economic chaos. War is going on with France, with other European countries. People are scared. The the economy is going down. Anytime the country is going down, all you have to do is create a false enemy from within. Create a false enemy from within. Tell the majority of people, this is your enemy. Make this a bigger threat. The politician then says, I will save you from this enemy. And the politician swoops in, foments hatred, causes the majority to hate the minority, and then comes in as the knight in shining armor to save the majority from this small minority. Look at history. What did Hitler do in Nazi Germany? When Germany, when the Uh, uh, German uh, um, currency was at its weakest, when World War I was a disaster, when Germans are feeling a sense of complete humiliation, at that point in time, Hitler creates the narrative, oh, the enemy is within. And hatred rises to unprecedented levels, and people feel they're doing something when they turn on their own German citizens of another background, another nationality. You know what I'm talking about, right? And now, what happened here 15 years ago, right? Our economy, our national debt is in the trillions. We are spending more overseas in military expeditions than all 100 countries combined. In many ways, our country really has national disasters of the highest magnitude. Our healthcare is in shambles, etc., etc. What's the best tactic? Create a false enemy from within create an illusion that these guys us the muslims are the terrorists create an entire narrative and then foment hatred pass bills etc etc it always works people never learn from history but what they also don't learn is the opposite as well and with this we conclude what is the net result of destroying the social fabric of your own society what happens The long result, the long term result is always failure. No society can turn on itself and be successful. People never learn from history, neither the politicians nor the masses. You cannot divide your own country and then conquer what? Your own country? You cannot. And so, when the Muslims were expelled from Spain, when the Muslims were expelled from Valencia, 35% of the population leaves. The majority of them, skilled traders, craftsmen, farmers. They know how to plow. They know how to take care. What's going to happen? Valencia used to be the economic powerhouse of that region. That was it. With the expulsion of the Muslims, the Christians tried, tried, tried. But it continued to go down until Valencia is a thing of the past. You cannot divide and conquer your own country. It's always gonna result in failure and the Spanish people saw this too late and the reality is people never learned from their history. So bottom line, brothers and sisters, it is important that we as Muslims, we go back to history, we learn from history, we understand the pitfalls of the past so that we at least in our individual lives, do not fall prey to them. And the final point, subhanAllah, no matter what happens to individual regions, Allah will protect the religion of Islam. Sure, pockets might fail. Sure, pockets might disappear. But the religion of Islam shall always flourish as we see today. <laughs> ويا خجلي إذا ما قال لي ربي أما استحييته تعصيني ولا تخشى من العتب وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وتأبى في الهوى قربي فتب مما جنيت عسى تعوذ <تصفيق> الى